following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. So the reading is taken from Mark chapter 2, and you'll find that on page 1004, page 1004 in the Bibles. And we're going to begin to read Mark 2, verse 18, Jesus questioned about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I hope you're a bit less damp than I am. If I stop every now and again to stop bits of water running off my glasses or my hair, then just bear with me. Um, My name's Maeve Sherlock. I'm one of the curates here at St Nick's, and it's uh, my privilege to talk a little bit now about the reading that you've just heard. Now, it's a very familiar one, and many of you may have heard it read a number of times if you're long-standing churchgoers, especially the bit about new wine. We've just sung about the new wine with great panache, and indeed there's a whole festival called New Wine. Some of you may even have been to it, and be indeed even damper than you are today. But... One of the things, because we're, at the moment we're doing a series on the Gospel of Mark called the Jesus Revolution, as our great banners around the church show, I want to go back and try to look at this story in context. So, at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, there are a series of five conflicts between Jesus and the religious authorities of the day. And this is one of that series. So, the, the, they start off quite low-key, but they fairly quickly start to escalate. So the first of them is at the beginning of chapter 2. You'll know the story where a man, a paralysed man, is lowered down through a house by his friend so that Jesus can heal him. And Jesus does heal him, but he also forgives his sins, which is rather controversial. Now on that occasion, nobody actually protested out loud. Although we are told in verses 6 to 7 that some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves... Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. No one can, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that then led into the incident in verses 13 where Jesus calls Levi the tax collector and then has dinner at his house, which causes an almighty scandal. At that time, the religious teachers did speak up. Well, they didn't tackle Jesus directly. They simply went to his disciples and said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Now, the third encounter is then today, the one we've just heard read to us. And here, the dispute is about fasting. And this time, someone develops the courage to ask Jesus directly, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, next week, we'll hear about the final two run-ins where Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath rules. And after that, you'll see the conflict has ramped up so much that the Pharisees start to plot Jesus' death. Now, you might well think, well, that escalated quickly. I mean, like, the first time you didn't even say anything out loud, and now you want to kill him? I mean, what's going on? And I think perhaps there's a hint in that. These aren't just disagreements about religious practices, like our modern debates about worship music or wearing vestments or what's going on at communion. No, they represent something rather deeper than that. They represent a fundamental change, the emergence of a truly new reality, a kind of Jesus revolution. But for today, let's go back to today's reading and look at it in a bit more detail and see what got everybody so worked up. You might want to follow this in your Bibles on page 1004. So we start off, we're told the Pharisees were fasting and so were the disciples of John the Baptist, but Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Well, you might ask, why does that matter? Well, the three main pillars of Judaism were and are prayer, almsgiving and fasting. So fasting did really matter. And then, as now, it wasn't just about not eating. It was something that was done perhaps to help with prayer or as a sign of penitence or to remind people of their need of God. And it was seen as a clear mark of religious commitment. But Jews had different approaches to fasting. The only place in the Old Testament where they said you must fast was on the Day of Atonement. So we could assume that Jews would all fast on the Day of Atonement. But many of them might only have fasted then. And different practices of fasting were developing in different groups. And so, for example, today we have two groups who are fasting, but quite likely in different ways and for different reasons. Now, the scholars tell us at the time that Pharisees fasted two days a week, Monday and Thursday. And because the Pharisees were a holiness movement, it's quite likely that their fasting was a a mark of piety, a way of consecrating themselves to God. Then we've got the disciples of John the Baptist. John used to have a lot of followers. And then when Jesus' ministry started, some of them followed Jesus. But a group stayed with John as a distinct religious group for some time, even after he was put in prison and things all went wrong. And given that John's focus on repentance, it seems reasonable that they they were likely fasting as a form of repentance or to bring on the day of judgment. So here we have two religious groups, each embracing fasting, in a way that indicated religious commitment and went way beyond the requirements of the law of Moses, but actually doing slightly different things and maybe signalling slightly different things. But Jesus' disciples aren't fasting at all. And that's the challenge thrown down to him. Why don't your disciples fast? Are you guys even serious about religion? What are you doing? So Jesus responds in verse 19, as he so often does, with a counter-question. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Now, it's worth noting Jesus doesn't condemn fasting. What he's saying is this is not the right time or the right place for it. But he chooses to say this using a wedding metaphor. How can the wedding guests fast while the groom is here? In other words, how can my disciples fast when I'm with them? 
And since Jesus chose to use it, I think it's worth reflecting for a moment on what using a wedding metaphor might tell us about the meaning of Jesus' presence and ministry among them. Well, the first and most obvious thing about a wedding is it's generally a time of great joy. Now, it seems that at the time, a wedding feast in a Jewish village would have lasted a whole week. Well, it's a week first time round. If you were remarried later, you only got three days, but you'd already had a week, so fair enough. So a whole week of fasting, mostly. And this was, all you had to do as a guest was show up and drink shed loads of food and wine. This was a proper party. There was music, there was dancing in the street. Apparently, even the rabbis were meant to put down their scrolls and books and go in and party. So clearly, this was not a time for fasting or sorrow. This was a time of celebration. The second thing about a wedding is, of course, it's a time of new beginning, of a new relationship. And the brilliant biblical scholar Dick France says that the wedding imagery evokes a kind of sense of a new relationship between God and his people. And it conveys the joy and exhilaration of that new situation. There's then a bit of a debate in in biblical circles about whether using a wedding metaphor is hinting that Jesus was the Messiah Now, we're quite used to biblical imagery about weddings. I mean, particularly in the New Testament, God and his bride, the church, if you come to church regularly, you'll have heard that read. But it seems at the time, the bridegroom wasn't one of the images used regularly for the Messiah, either in the Old Testament or in in Jewish teaching of the time. So those listening to Jesus wouldn't necessarily have thought, ah, he's saying he's the Messiah. On the other hand, it's quite clear that the bridegroom a.k.a. Jesus, is absolutely the central figure in the story. Again, Dick France points out the focus of the excitement is not the wedding, it's the bridegroom. People aren't happy because they're at a wedding, they're happy because they're in the presence of the bridegroom. Jesus' disciples have joy because they're in the presence of Jesus. He is the source of that joy. So Jesus responds to this third challenge by simply refusing to play the competitive fasting game. He's just not going there, my boys are holier than your boys. He's just not playing. Because, of course, he's not just another religious leader. His presence and his ministry represent something quite different, something quite distinct, a truly new reality, which calls for celebration and not for sorrow and fasting. But that's not the whole story. In verse 20, Jesus goes on to say, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now, the idea of the bridegroom being taken from them would have been quite a shocking image. In a normal wedding, it was the guests who eventually went away, leaving the the married couple to start their new life together. But the Greek word used for removal, um, a pyro, doesn't imply natural causes. It implies that the groom has been forcibly removed from the wedding. That's the picture Jesus has painted. And since the bridegroom represents Jesus, then to us this is a clear signal of the violent death that awaits Jesus. And on that day, his disciples will fast. Now, of course, we have the benefit of the th- knowing things that the people who are listening don't. We know Jesus was the Messiah, and we know the story was far from over. We know that to defeat sin and death and reconnect people with God, the bridegroom would have to go willingly to a violent death. And that his disciples would know sorrow, both at the loss of Jesus, but also the persecution that was coming down the track at them after his death. 
But Jesus' imagery doesn't stop there. In verses 21 and 22, he gets on with the application part of his mini-sermon. And he uses two very simple but very powerful visual images from everyday life. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. I love the way Jesus uses images that resonate with everyday life. And they resonate today as well, at least maybe for those of us of a certain age. Um, before the days of throwaway fashion, if you had a hole in a piece of in a garment, you patched it. Um, that was all that anyone did. I mean, I, I hope that the drive towards sustainability may one day take us back to patching garments, although in my case it would mean my sewing skills needing to go up a bit of a notch from their current kind of button reaffixing levels. But I've no doubt if anyone wants to teach me, I'm in the market. But in those days, when cloth was woven, it was then taken to a fuller. And the fuller beat it and cleaned it and treated with some kind of weird stuff. Um, And the idea is when he'd finished, then at that point, if you washed the cloth, you knew it wouldn't shrink. So obviously, everybody knew you wouldn't patch an old pair of trousers with a new bit of cloth. Because if you did, when you washed it, the new bit would shrink, it would rip it away, and the hole's bigger than ever. Jesus is stating the obvious as he is with the wineskins. Again, as a child, I recall people making wine at home. Has anyone ever done that? I can see some nods. Excellent. Uh, For those of you who are younger, it was a bit of a thing, especially in the kind of 70s. And and in our defence, there wasn't as much wine around at the time, and it was expensive, and so people made it at home. Now, my my, my folks never did. Um, But I I was talking to a friend of mine this week who said her father liked experimenting in making it with anything he could lay his hands on. And she describes her her mother coming home one day to find all of her prized rose bushes completely stripped and a vat of rose wine bubbling away on the stove. People really made wine in his case the wine exploded all over the kitchen including all over her new washing which hung on one of those wonderful pulleys above above the argot yeah disaster exactly wine garments almost like a biblical episode in the making wine garments all destroyed total disaster so but that of course is what jesus in jesus's day again when the wine then when you fermented wine the first time you'd ferment it in a vat and then you'd strain it through to get rid of the lees and yeast and... Where's Jamie Harrison? I mean, you need, anyway, you, get, you strain it to get rid of all the stuff in it. And the second run, you then put it into wine skins made out of leather, possibly goat skins. And then it would have its second fermentation in these wine skins. But as it's fermenting, it produces gases. So, of course, they expand, and the wine skins would expand with them. And that was fine. But as they got old, they got a bit brittle, and they lost their elasticity, so they couldn't expand. So, psh, disaster, wine and wine skin everywhere. Argo clothes all ruined. So, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that the old is bad and the new is good? I'm not sure, because if we look at detail, the old garment was presumably serviceable enough to make it worth patching. And the old wineskins might have been okay for old wine, they just weren't good for new wine. So is it a slightly subtler message that old and new don't mix? Or is it perhaps something even stronger than that, something quite dramatic? Is this a truly new reality, where the new is something of such a different character that it can't possibly be contained by the old, and trying to do that just causes disaster? Well, I think that's exactly what these parables signal. They told the Pharisees, if they had ears to listen, that Jesus wasn't just another Jewish preacher and wonder worker, 
The new patch and the new wine represent the revolutionary nature of Jesus' ministry, the radical preaching of the good news, the fact that his miracles, the healing, the forgiving of sins, the exorcisms, they weren't just events. They were signs of the breaking in of the kingdom of God into the current reality. So he couldn't just be incorporated into the old order, the old worldview, the old conventions. Everything about him subverted that order. This was nothing short of a truly new reality, a revolution. So if the Pharisees were fasting to consecrate themselves to God, and if John's disciples were fasting for repentance, well, fine. But the Messiah has now come. The kingdom is breaking in, and Jesus' disciples' behavior reflects that. Because those images of the wedding, of the new cloth and the new wine, they are in the jargon eschatological. They're signs that point to the final age. Because Christians understand time in ages. There's the time before Jesus came, before God entered our world and died and, and rose again for us. There's the final age where Jesus will come in glory, the kingdom will be realized, joy unabounded, every tear will be wiped away. And we, of course, live in the time between the times. The time after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, when the kingdom of God has begun to break in, but it's not yet fully realized. So the question for today's gospel, for those of us here in the time between the times, is actually quite simple. How does your life reflect the radical new beginning, the truly new reality, brought about by the presence of Jesus. When I came to faith, I was middle-aged. So not long ago, obviously. Um, and it changed everything. You know, it wasn't that the world basically stayed the same, but I added in a new belief system, like I'd, I'd become a vegetarian or you know, suddenly decided to join a political party. Everything changed. It was as though the world had shifted on its axis. And I really hadn't expected that. And I don't know what I'd expected. It was all a bit of a mystery. But I think like lots of people outside Christianity, I think I thought it was quite worthy. And, you know, when I came to faith, I really wish somebody earlier had said to me, look, there's an awful lot of joy involved. Because my life was enriched immeasurably. I mean, both by getting to know God, but also by the richness of the Christian tradition, about the community I then became a part of. Everything had changed. Before that, I mean, I was a, the world was somewhere I had to plough my path through. And then suddenly I became part of a people on a journey together. Just journeying as disciples of Jesus, all in the same direction. And it all looked so different. And it changed my sense of what mattered in the world because it really was a new reality. I mean, I remember being much more attuned to the beauty of creation, both in, in the natural world and also the beauty of people whose beauty I hadn't seen before. I mean, it was, it was a really transformative light. And I think coming to faith can make the world just a bigger place. It expands our horizons. Things look different. We don't see the full picture because that only comes really when we get to the final age. But we start to have a sense of truth and the real reality because we've seen Jesus and we've met Jesus. Now, the presence of Christian joy isn't about being permanently cheery, a kind of spiritual Butlin's red coat or happy, happy air hostess. It's, I mean, but it is something deeper. For a start, the sorrow of which Jesus spoke is still part of the Christian story. We're about to enter Lent, where we'll traditionally be focusing on the cross, 
on the betrayal, on the suffering, on the death of Jesus. And many Christians rightly fast during Lent as a spiritual discipline. But the cross only makes sense because of the resurrection. And Christians are nothing if we're not Easter people. And here in the time between the times, that's hard to remember. We live in a world where there's pain and suffering and death. So if you're living with illness or bereavement or anxiety, I'm not saying you should be smiling all the time. But I am saying that you need to hold on to the deeper truth, that this is not the whole story. This is not the only reality. When I came to faith, I felt as though I'd tumbled out the back of a wardrobe and found myself in Narnia. If you're one of the ten people who's never read the C.S. Lewis books, four children fall out the back of a wardrobe and end up in another world. And Lewis wrote the story as a Christian allegory of sorts. Although a theologian I know once told me he thinks Harry Potter is a better analogy because he says they have got the wizards and the muggles, the ordinary people, are in the same world, but the ordinary people can't see the other dimensions. He thinks that's better. But I'm attached to Narnia because I felt once glimpsed, never forgotten. And you can't get back there every time on demand. Sometimes the back of the wardrobe is just made of wood, but you know it's there. Once you've glimpsed it or tasted it, you know it's there. And it's a truly new reality. So back to the question our reading asks us, is how different is your life day to day as a result of that truly new reality that's brought about by the radical gospel of Jesus Christ? Does it permeate everywhere? Or is it in a box marked God or church in the corner? Because the clear message of today's reading is if we try to contain the gospel into the corner of this world, disaster happens. Ruined clothes, wine everywhere, cross wife. Bad things happen. So my challenge, I think, to all of us for this week is to look again. Even, and perhaps especially, if you can never remember when you weren't a Christian, look again every day. Make time to look afresh for a week, to look around at the world with new eyes as one who is a disciple of Christ, one who knows the truth, who's glimpsed Narnia, who's an Easter person. Have a look at a snowdrop or the first tulip. Look at the beauty of someone whose beauty had passed you by until this morning. Think about the madly radical upside-down values of the kingdom of God. And give thanks for it. You know, when I was preparing the sermon, one of the there are lots of things you can say about these verses, most of them you've already heard. But when I was training for ordination, My tutor said to me, you know the job of a preacher is not just to say, what does this passage mean? The job of a preacher is to pray until he or she knows what God wants to say to this people, in this place, on this day, through this passage. And I've been praying, and I think what God wants us to know here on this day is that the Christian life is meant to be full of joy, that it permeates every corner of our being, And so I just want to pray to the Lord that this week he will give each one of us a fresh glimpse of Narnia, a sudden surge of Christian joy, and that will make us realise this truly is a new reality. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.